All right, so we are a couple of laypersons that are just interested in the Tao Te Ching and the Hendrix 1989 translation of Lao Tse's original, uh, well, I don't know, is it text? It's iconography. Is you call that text? It's got chapters. I can, I can text you right away that. Anyway, chapter two. When everyone in the world knows the beautiful as beautiful, ugliness comes into being. When everyone knows the good, then the not good comes to be. The mutual production of being and non-being. The mutual completion of difficult and easy. The mutual formation of long and short. The mutual filling of high and low. The mutual harmony of tone and voice. The mutual following of front and back. These are all constants. Therefore, the sage dwells in non-active affairs and practices the wordless teaching. The ten thousand things arise, but he doesn't begin them. He acts on their behalf, but he doesn't make them dependent. He accomplishes his tasks, but he doesn't dwell on them. It is only because he doesn't dwell on them that they, therefore, do not leave him. It's, it's funny because last week there was one sentence that seemed like it had a typographical error in it, and this week it seems like that last sentence. Uh, but I suppose it is, therefore, do not leave them. And I said am, I, I meant to say dwell on them that they therefore do not leave him. What, what part is wrong? Oh, well, I thought it would be therefore do not leave him. But... Oh, do not leave them. That they therefore do not leave them. Anyway, that's a... Oh, them as in sage plural, I'm thinking. My difficulty with this, there's a couple, a couple of difficulties I had with this verse, but the main one was when you go from the ninth to the tenth line, uh-huh. There's a therefore in there, and I don't understand. Okay, I just kind of understand the concept of mutuality to a certain extent. I'm sure it's much deeper than what I understand it to be, but I'm not sure how that leads to the sage therefore dwelling in non active affairs. It's like the cause and effect kind of thing. Yeah. Because yep. of the mutuality, therefore the sage doesn't sit around and thinks. I mean, that's what I. Well, yeah, it's it's a uh, dwells on non-active affairs. Well, yeah, it's it's kind of a, it sounds like a double speak to me because you can't dwell on something that's non-active. I mean, like a rock, maybe. Uh, but I think it's a kind of a double speak thing, you know, that they tend to do sometimes, where he, he doesn't. He doesn't dwell on things of consequence or of, you know, involvement. And he practices the wordless teaching. That could just be living by example, I suppose, or something to that. Well, and that and the thing of, of not... not, uh, you know, the... Oh, we covered this last time. What do you call it? Where you teach by asking questions, not by oh, statements. Kind of a Socratic type of starts with a D. dialectic. Dialectic. Yeah. Okay, so I kind of get that, but what, I, I guess the thing that threw me off in a big way was there seems to be some connection between the first part of this, which we haven't really even yeah. dove into yet, and then there's a therefore clause, which seems to say that because the world knows the beautiful or because of the mutuality between the beautiful and the ugly and the good and the not good and then being and non-being and all these other this kind of catalog of things that are yin and yang then therefore the sage dwells does 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 the sage dwell in these non-active affairs because there is this weird mutuality that is constant which well I, I think it's I think it's one of those ones where you can just, it's too easy to overthink it. Because, 
you know, and of course I see this all the time in social media and, and other people, is that, you know, people love to speak in absolutes and they love to, you know, say things and I just didn't have the heart to listen to the Republican convention, but the reports I got, you know, and the clips that I did listen to, they're all saying all these absolute things, like a big one is the Black Lives Matter, and then I guess last night some guy gave some big speech about Blue Lives Matter, kind of missing the point, you know, that, well, you know, all lives do matter, it's just that, you know, black people are still getting more than their ration of shit. I figured, you, you know, know, they were going to talk about plagiarists matter, but they didn't quite get there. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, uh, yeah, no. Lots of absolutes. Yeah, so, 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 um, it, it's hard to explain to people that, that you know something is beautiful because things that are not beautiful exist. If everything was beautiful, how would you know it? You know, and that, and and so all these things are like that. If everything was difficult, nothing would be easy, and nothing would seem easy. You know, and so, so it, so it is a the duality. You know, there's of course different kinds of duality: the duality of me and other, and the duality of you and your deity. But there's also this kind of duality that everything has its, every action has its reaction. Everything has its opposite that, that brings it into being sometimes. Curiously though, when, when the sage, or when Lao, Lao Tzu, Lao Tzu, when he includes that section, he says these are all constants, which is an absolute. Yeah. You could say the constant right. and, the un, and the inconstant, or the unconstant. Well, he said that in chapter one, that there's no such thing as something that's forever right so so which you know, is kind of a funny it's, it's sort of the same I mean I, I'm a, very much of a relativist in fact I'm absolutely a relativist if you want to look at it that way so it's, I've lived that kind of idea of there's a built in conflict between saying everything is relative well how about that statement is everything relative except for the statement that everything is relative <clears throat> Well, yeah. Well, of course, that's kind of an egotistical view. And so I think a lot of these things, and the reason they seem to contradict each other is just to sort of point out that, yeah, not everything is, you know, not everything is, well, there are no absolutes. I don't know, maybe they'll get that to a future chapter. Right. But, um... So nothing is all good, nothing is all bad, nothing is all about you. <laughs> and you know, not, not, you know, there are things that exist, come into existence and go out of existence that you're never aware of. And they're never relative to you. Um, so. It does seem to be a difficult concept for a lot of people to understand. And as a matter of fact, if you are a religious person in a Western sense, you soundly reject the doctrine of relativism and think that there are yeah. certain absolutes that, which if you read the Bible there's a lot of contradictory absolutes but they're still yeah. all absolutes right and, and absolutes are comforting and they're you know they're not emotional and you know the most emotional things that you see are people or absolute things like a lot of people there's no gray area with, uh, uh, what do you call, relationship fidelity, you know? It's just, it's an absolute that... Abortion. Yeah, some life, people are... Life begins. Yeah, so some people are absolute about that. And, um, but you know, it's just, you know, a point of view, whereas, you know, all life is... Is, is is valuable but you know we kill plants and animals to eat all the time and, and to build our homes and, and all that stuff so for some reason human life is more valuable just because we're humans because we have a soul 
Well, there is that, no doggy heaven. Yeah. Well, that's just kind of sad. I, I mean, heaven wouldn't really be that great of a place without dogs. The idea of a of a soul that's separate from everything else is kind of convenient argument. You know, I don't really subscribe to that so much. Uh, I mean, I have because of my mind, I have a personal you know identity, but. I don't see that it extends beyond my mind. Uh, yeah, I would tend to agree with you about that. But. Uh, yeah, so... Um, now, okay, in the first line, it says, when everyone in the world knows the beautiful as beautiful. Does that mean yeah. that if one person doesn't know that, then there's no ugliness? Or does that just mean as each learns, kind of? I mean, then there are other translations. Yeah, what does it say in the other translations? I think they might have been taking license when the world recognizes beauty as beauty. So the world, in the first one there, the Wa translation, is not is more of a general statement. When the world recognizes beautiful, when people of the world all know beauty is beauty. Yeah, it's yeah. a little bit ambiguous, but I guess as a person becomes aware of beauty, then they necessarily become aware of ugliness. Right. Well, and, and when they say the world, you know, they're, they're talking about the sort of the, you know, the common knowledge of, of humanity. But it can also mean, you know, literally the world and, and not specifically humans. Well, if you know, was there ever a time, according to Lao Tzu? Yeah when there was not beauty or ugliness? Or has it always been part of human experience? Or, you, or it doesn't matter? I'm just kind of curious. I don't know the towel very well. Yeah. Well, I think later on, I think there's another chapter where he describes what Tao, what Tao is. And so it's timeless. So it doesn't really have a beginning. And that may have just been his perspective 2,400 years ago, you know, because, you know, you know, a lot of, like we said last week, you know, a lot of concepts of the universe and all its parts just weren't known because there was the earth and the sky and everything in between and that was kind of it all the things you could touch or think about um, so it was easier to see things I think as just having always been well yeah but my question I guess, so I guess that means that beauty and ugliness have always been because mm-hmm. this almost implies the when everyone in the world knows to me almost imply that there was a time when they didn't know but I guess it doesn't really imply that. I mean, is there a potential existence where people would not know beauty and ugliness, or is it just a necessary part of human existence? I think it's a rhetorical statement. Okay. To be tell you the truth, I think it's just, you know, there's no other way to start that sentence. Okay. Because you think of it as an iconography, you, you can imagine one of those little square pictures with an equal sign next to it, another little square picture. And that's what this guy got out of that. Oh, no, I was just kidding. Okay. Thank you. All right. So, could say, for example, ugliness comes into being because of beauty or something to that effect. Right. Well, awareness of it. Because when the world knows. So, so, well, then, of course, that immediately turning it around... Maybe ugliness is what was people were aware of first. And then they go, oh, but look at that. That's beautiful. After they had a baby, I'm sure they were like, oh, my God, that thing is ugly. Yeah. <laughs> Throw it out. Yeah. No, don't. It'll become beautiful. Yeah. Well, actually, now, see, this is where science comes in. They've studied that. And a lot of the things about babies are designed for you to, to love them. And that's why most people have just a visceral response to babies that oh I just love that thing and babies have that smell that that people like and 
actually their shit doesn't stink because that encourages you to take care of them if their shit smelled like a, a grown-ups and uh, all of our, our common the commonality of, of, of uh, what is thought of what is thought of or felt as beauty is based on a human like facial beauty is things that are similar to a baby like large eyes big forehead hmm, round cheeks and so and that's why uh, you know a big butt big Just butt kidding. yeah well yeah and uh, well um, and that's why blondes are s- such a automatic beautiful thing because they're fair skin and they have the blonde hair like a baby now you know if you're African or whatever I guess your babies start with dark curly hair, but you know most uh, Caucasian type babies start with blonde hair, and then it changes. But there's, you know, uh, you know, I, I assume Asian babies start with a very fair skin and get darker. You know, in other races. Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, so. Anyway, that was just a sidetrack on your comment that, you know, this is beautiful, like babies. Uh, flowers are designed so that bees will be attracted to them. Right. Sometimes by smell. Sometimes by smell. Yeah, like that, what's that one plant that smells like vomit? Right, and the flies love it. And the flies love it because yeah. it smells like what they like. The vomit. D- dog shed or, yeah. Yeah, it's funny when you pass those, like, what stinks? But it's like a lily that is four feet wide. I mean, it's huge and it's visually it's attractive. Oh, there's trees that have that stinky smell too, though. Oh, do bees like those? No, flies do. Flies do. Oh, yeah. okay. stinky trees. They're kind of like the big lily that you're talking about, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard of the big stinky lily. Yeah. I was thinking of the trees that's very small, little, little white flowers on them and they stink. Yeah. So, so that, so, so that is something that I don't know if he's. If, if he was aware of that, just sort of intuitively, or had observed it, you know, because science just discovered that, like, in the last 50 years or so, you know, but it's something that I guess you could have known, that, you know, beauty, or what attracts a human, to think of in terms of beauty is partially hardwired. Not that we're flies, but, you know. <laughs> that's an interesting question about but not just beauty, but good and bad, things that are kind of somewhat subjective but seem to have certain absolutist tendencies to them, like right. good and bad. I think most people, when they're watching, say, a movie, Western people watching a Western movie as a villain, as a good guy, 90% of the people identify as a good guy and not like the villain, or maybe 95%. So there's a pretty wide acceptance of certain like, qualities in people that... Yeah. We would all say are good or bad. You know, if you say the word courage, most people are going to go, yeah. Yeah. If you say the word, you know, sinister or something, most people are going to go, ooh. Right. And then, of course, in storytelling, they turn that around. Uh, Harry Potter, that one wizard that you, that you hate at first, the Snape, turns out to be a good guy. Okay. But he just is kind of a dick, you know? And... You know, and so in storytelling, at least, they, they turn it around on you sometimes. Yeah, but play with it. But in, that happens in real life, too. You know, I was reading a thing the other day, of course, in the news is a lot about, uh, well, the president, but other public figures and their public acceptance level and their popularity. And uh, the president is like around 50% or something, and, but he peaked out at like almost 90 or 70% at one point. But, you know, like uh, a lot of people don't like Hillary Clinton for various reasons, but do you have to like her for her to do a good job? Is, you, know, you know, a lot of people complain that George Bush, this junior, uh, was a guy you'd like to have a beer with. Well, so what? I'd rather him have been smart and articulate and just not good company. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to have a beer with them. Yeah. Now, Obama, 
I mean, he lately, you know, when I've seen him on television or whatever, he seems like a very mellow, cool guy. But at first, he was kind of overwhelmed by the job, and you could tell. And he actually made a point of having a beer with some average guy, and it was they put it in the news and everything. And at that point, I don't know if I would have wanted to have been that guy because <laughs> he was like all awkward and whatnot. Right. But you know, by all measures, he's very intelligent. And he has come up to speed on what his job is. And so, yeah, perceptions of good and evil, there again, it goes back to emotion. You know, your emotional response. Um, I don't know if they get to that in the future. In the future uh, because right here they're talking about dwells. But maybe in the other translations they use words like passion. Dwells, taking no action, harmonize. I don't know any of you. Yeah, they, don't, they don't talk directly about passion in this chapter, but it doesn't look like. No, I don't say anything about passion here. It's, it, then we go, I mean, from this idea of either duality or relativism or however you want present the first section then you go right. to talk about the sage which I still don't see how that kind of follows from the ideas of duality or the idea of relativism okay the therefore the sage dwells in non-active affairs I guess you're supposed to assume that these mutual production completion those are all active affairs and he does not dwell on them, but it doesn't mean he doesn't participate. He just doesn't dwell on them. And practices the wordless teaching. Like you were saying before, living by example. So, so I think, I think it's, again, it's indirectly talking about emotion and passion. Because if you dwell on something, that's, that's an emotion. That's not reason. If, you know, unless you have OCD, if you keep dwelling on something, then you're doing that, you know, for some, for some bug up your ass, you know, of thought and reason, or just emotion. Um, so I think, in another, another way to turn it around is that, so if you're able to see the good, then you're able to see the bad, but if you focus too much on the good, it loses meaning for you. If you focus too much on the beautiful, it starts to lose meaning. I remember my own example would be the time I worked in the giant hair salon. And uh, so there were like 25 hairdressers and their customers, and they had an aerobic studio there and me. And it occurred to me after like six months that I was getting pretty blasé about hanging out with gorgeous women. I wasn't really happy about it, <laughs> but it was like, that's just who I associated with, and it didn't really affect me. And, and then, of course, doing massage, you have to discipline yourself to kind of not pay attention to that anyway, Right. but um, still, um, you know, there are other examples of that, like like as an old geezer, I have less and less patience for loud music. But I never really liked it in the first place that much. But now, it's, it doesn't hit me as music. It hits me as irritation. But when you're younger and you hang out in bars, and you know, I used to hang out with bands and people like that, I didn't really notice it that much that it was loud and crunchy. How about you? Um being immune, immunized to, to various stimuli. Yeah. I don't know. I was thinking the, just my initial reaction to all of this in terms of the way I tend to live my life is that I am very much of a sensualist, I guess you would say. I like to yeah. experience things. I like to eat good food. I like to see beautiful, the beauty of nature. Although, I mean, you know, you have to, in a modern society, unless you are you know, independently wealthy, philosopher 
sage type. It's probably pretty rare these days, but you have to work for a living. So you kind of contrast that day-to-day grind with seeing the beauty anyway. I mean, it's natu- it comes naturally. I, but, but like if I lived on... I, I mean, I could see, like, yeah, if you lived on the coast in Monterey, you might not look at the shoreline the same way I would if I go up there and, and check it out. Because to me, it's just this blast of beauty that... Titillates my senses, right? Right. um, But as far as like living experientially and trying to just kind of maximize the sensual pleasures that I get out of life, I've never noticed any kind of point where I became, where I felt overkill. The mayor just haven't had the luxury of being in that position. I've never gone on a six-month vacation. You know, three weeks is a lot for me, and that's three weeks of beauty is not too much. I don't get immunized to it at all in three weeks. It's like gone. Well, and then well, okay, that's sensory, sensual things. But what about like what we consider right and wrong? We you know talk that human life is more valuable than other life for some reason. So. There are people whose job it is to kill people. And some of them do it indirectly, like flying an airplane with bombs. But, you know, like a soldier or, or a, you know, a government-sanctioned assassin, like we see in the movies. Sometimes, you know, in the movies, of course, they're portrayed as sociopaths and they didn't care in the first place. Their wife died. And... But others of them... Like the guy, that, there was some movie about some the the sharpshooter in Iraq or somewhere. Yeah, uh, it's not American Sniper. Movie. American Sniper movie, yeah. And so that guy was like really good at it. And for I guess for a while, I didn't see the movie, but I assume the way movies are made that after a while he got kind of used to it, used to the job, and he was allowed to separate himself from his morality and be really good at it. But then it kind of came crashing back, you know, because that's kind of extreme. But you, but if, like a normal everyday soldier, you know, has to kill people, but they, you know, they get used to it, and you know, they don't like it, but they, but me as, you know, someone never killed anybody, one time would just crush me, and uh, so... And then there's there's mechanisms in place, like uh, you know the oldest trick in war is to dehumanize the enemy. Absolutely. And that is to buffer yourself against what you have to do. Right. Talking you know, World War II soldiers who said they were basically taught that the Japanese, particularly, I don't know how they dealt with the Germans, but the Japanese were monkeys. Right. So you just kill them. They're right. Just a nuisance. And they had they had other ones for kraut. <laughs> I'm sure. You know? Although it might be harder to dehumanize someone who <laughs> looks, looks like and seems and, and or that you could actually be related to. Yeah. yeah, maybe even that. Yeah. yeah, but and there were Japanese soldiers. So yeah, they had what was that they called them Huns or something? That doesn't make sense, but they called them something. They yeah. dehumanized them, and of course Russians, evil commies. You know, they weren't humans, and so. So that goes, that goes to the thing of, you know, when you can see something as good, then you can see things as bad. And uh, they must have had sociopaths back then, but we're talking about them here. Yeah, I, I was one. I mean, the whole back then thing. I was thinking about that in terms of just. It's almost like when I go to the Sequoia, I went to the Sequoias this weekend, and oh, I was neat. walking around with the big trees, took my son-in-law there, who's from Burma, so it's very exciting for him, but when I was looking at those big trees, and I've thought this before, I think they're 2,000 years old, could something like that have developed in modern times with the environmental circumstances the way they are, you know, more droughts, more whatever, extreme weather conditions, and I don't want to get too political about that, but I think you know, more pollution, more everything. And so right. would the sequoias have been able to develop under the circumstances we live in now? And it's kind of the same thing I was wondering about with the with Lao Tzu and whether 
anybody today would have the capacity to even kind of come up with these ideas in the same way he did because the life back then was so they caught clean or whatever you want to call it different. You know, it was not we're just so damn full of distractions. Well, yeah. Like well, the depth of the thinking. I think we mentioned, you know, last week they were talking about the the ten thousand things, and right, we we elevated that to at least a hundred thousand now uh, because there are just more things in the world now. Yeah, well, there's probably a hundred thousand different kinds of bread. Yeah, at least or rice or whatever. Yeah. So. But yeah, but I was just wondering, you know, I was, I was wondering about that. Like, could someone actually produce some like really? earth-shatteringly amazing piece of work like this that would start a whole new movement because they're so contemplative that they create this whole modern kind of system of thinking. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And would anybody have the patience to even try to learn it? I mean, well, you know, and from my perspective, the when, invent, when religion was invented, you know, it had nothing to do with any sort of deities or metaphysics. It was a civilizing force. These people that were cave people, you know, they started developing agriculture and commerce. They started multiplying in numbers. They had to be more organized. And uh, they had to, you know, understand those things. But they were cave people. You know, they, you know, they only had five brain cells to rub together. So, you know, so somebody came out with rules and started enforcing them and you know, and so this was a different approach. This is more of an individual, personal approach to an organized, you know, moral way to look at the world that isn't really rule-based, it's sort of thought-based. You know, it's like, well, why do you do that? Instead of, don't do that. Right. Um, you know, that's, you know, one of the things that has appealed to me about this and other Asian approaches to these things. Well, yeah, at the same time, I mean, now you're getting back to relativism versus absolutism because the people, and that's another interesting question about whether the effectiveness of a sage depends on the state of his listeners or is it just, is that sort of an absolute? But beyond that, if you allow people to read this and interpret it, although there may be some common themes and interpretations, everyone's going to come out differently, and so you don't really have, you know, the answers aren't necessarily all going to be the same, or maybe, maybe, maybe they are, I don't know. It seems like part of the whole point of it is that you, your answers may be different. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, like, beauty for one person may not be exactly the same as beauty for another person. Uh, you expressed a dislike for babies. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but some of these things... Yeah, they stink. Filling of the high and the low. And low. Filling of... Oh. Mutual filling of high and low. Mutual harmony of tone and voice. And to me, that one occurred to me. It's like tone and voice. How about tone and silence? Why, why is it... Written yeah. that way, and, and the uh, translations are all very similar. Well, there's one that says something about echo, but yeah, I didn't quite get why these particular mutualities were the ones that were chosen. So, yeah, so filling or uh, the harmony of tone and voice. Maybe what they're saying is okay, mutual harmony of tone and voice. So that sounds like an instrument and singing. It's harmony. It's talking about musical harmony. Yes, I think so. Yeah. But they, but but, which the is weird because it's not a duality like the other ones. Right, right. That's what it looks like. Right, it's not like you said, voice and not voice, or singing yeah. and talking. Maybe. I don't know if that would be some kind of duality. It depends on who's doing it. <laughs> but yeah, it depends on who's doing the singing oh. and talking, but yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the being and non-being, that's... <laughs> one cannot exist where the other one exists. It's either being or non-being. Right. Difficult and easy, that's a much different type of contrast because subject to 
Maybe being and non-being is subject to interpretation too. I don't know. But difficult and easy seems a lot more subject to interpretation. It's well, a lot and it's more also individualized. It's a lot more mutual completion of difficult and easy. And what does that mean? Mutual completion. You know, it's not just the, the duality of the way it seems. It's it's the mutual completion of difficult and easy. So one of the translations is difficult and easy complete one another. So the term completion might mean might be the result of the difficult and easy being in the same room. Yeah. Some of them say difficult and easy complement each other. Well, complete each other. Yeah. So I think the Henrik's translation of that might be a little confusing. Well, you know, that was one of the the comments on when I was looking at what what translation to use is this one was you know well a simplified beginner thing but of course it seems like <laughs> well there it again it's an absolute either do or do not do either you know do it hardcore or why bother uh, but you know uh, maybe that's the whole point of the translation it's sort of the way of the sage it's a uh, non-active interpretation. Difficult and easy interdepend on completion. That's a little different view of it too. Interdepend on completion. Huh. Well, I think the bottom line is just that it's part of the, you know, the two, two ends of the same scale or the duality. But with the difficult and easy is a strange choice because, jeez, places get noisier and noisier. But yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, the meters, the meters are topping out over here. Difficult and easy can vary a lot depending on who you're talking to. For me, evaluating the value of a case or even trying a case may not be easy, but it's not as difficult as it would be for somebody else. On the other hand, right, driving a race car at 135 miles an hour probably. Difficult for me. Well, you know, even though you know you, you've, you've done enough cases to where you know they're easier for you than other people, and some are quite routine. Each one must have its easy and its difficult part. And if you don't do the difficult part, you, there's no opportunity to do the easy part, and vice versa. So you know that that's another way of looking at mutual completion. That you know everything. You can't just pick and choose. You know what you're. You know if you want to accomplish something, you have to do all of it or none of it. However, I would say that I think there are some people who make their lives more difficult in general, and they yeah. complicate things for themselves, and they end up spending most of their time in the difficult. And other people, like myself, for example, I spend most of our time on the easy. Maybe I'm just lazy. I don't know. Right. Well, it seems easy to me anyway. A lot of it. Maybe the difficulties just become easy for me, but then is it still difficult? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Having spoken to you for hours and hours, I, uh, you know, I see what, you know, there's a pattern of you evaluating things soberly and then proceeding, you know, setting things up so that they are, you know, going to be, well, not easy for you, but, you know, the shorter path, you know, because why not? You have the opportunity to to think things out ahead and and be reason, you know, and be a reasoned person. You know, it's like I don't think either of us or anybody would ever accuse either of us of being, uh, uh, you know, compulsive or impulsive or you know anything like that. Right. You know, I mean, well, I will say that when I was growing up, I grew up without any discipline. Mm -hmm. Eight brothers, seven brothers and sisters, eight kids. So my parents really didn't have, and my, my parents didn't have that much interest to discipline us in the first place, but probably couldn't have done a very good job, even if they were pretty good at it, which they weren't. But everything I learned about discipline, which is what, in my way of looking at the world is what you're talking about, the planning, the, you know, that's, yeah. in some way, that was the difficult, was becoming disciplined to the point where everything became easy. 
I think well, I mean, at some point when you were younger, did you kind of look at your life and go, "Ah, this is a mess. I need to like do ongoing maintenance to make it, you know, make me comfortable." I would say starting in about my 30s, I pretty much coasted until I got into my 30s with a lack of discipline, and then I probably toward my late 30s, I started to kind of come up with disciplines that I just created for myself slowly over time. Yeah. By the time I hit my 40s, I was probably compulsively almost disciplined. Yeah. And still am somewhat. I mean, I go, I make lists, I love to scratch things off a list, so I have a little bit of that OCD kind of... Yeah. I have, I have uh, schedules and schedules for my schedules. <laughs> I have this thing I call my crazy paper, which is my weekly schedule. It has little yeah. scratch marks on it and notes all over it. And so yeah. I've got systems. Right. Now, I am, you know, by design, disorganized because of the ADHD and the, and the you know, the uh, uh, distractibility thing. So, yeah, I've done things, and I was thinking about that today, is that, you know, and I guess a lot of ADHD people get in the habit of making lists. Because when you get lost, well, go back to the list. Well, I never could get the discipline to do that on an ongoing basis except with the invention of my little computer here and the computer at home and, and the internet and all that all of my things I have to do I put on a calendar and all the calendars talk to each other so like today was trash day and so every device in my house reminded me that it was trash day now, if that was a person, I might think of it as nagging, but it was me just reminding me. You know, I wasn't. You're nagging yourself, right? Yeah, yeah, but it wasn't. You know, it wasn't oppressive because I knew that I could ignore it. You know, now a couple of them require you to like interact with the device to shut it off. Oh, but that's really nagging. Yeah, that is. Yeah, I got one question for you. But it works, is the thing. I have a question for what? you. What? Did you take out the trash? I did actually, but okay. you know, not. Okay. But I don't always get it out there in time. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm, I'm better at it than I used to be. But uh, you know, like tomorrow is the blue trash can, and that's only every two weeks. Much easier to forget, right? Because I, I noticed my neighbors forget it, and or they forget which day or whatever. And uh, like my neighbor, his blue trash can has been out there for seven days because he put it out last <laughs> Thursday. Um, I don't get enough recycled stuff, you know, so I rarely put mine out, which makes it even more, I have to, yeah, I have to get the message from the devices and then decide whether I'm going to act on it or not, and then the next device that tells me, no, I already decided, we don't have enough to bother with it, but, um, so, so even though it's not my predisposition, I do have a number of disciplines in place that, you know, I automate as much as possible. But, you know, a lot of, like, as a friend of mine that is very much into health and exercise and all that sort of stuff. Now, part of it is that he enjoys it. And part of it is that he is anal retentive. And, you know, once he decides that he's going to have a routine, that he's going to exercise so many minutes every week, it just, you know, it just comes apart if he doesn't do it. I think I could say I'm pretty adaptable for, just as an example, like at work, I have a list of, kind of a checklist of things that I do every day, and it's the same checklist every day, but the tasks obviously vary. So one of them might be Outlook reminders, and so you take whatever reminders you got from Outlook that day, well, I have probably not, have not looked at my Outlook reminders now for three weeks just because I'm kind of backed up on stuff. Right. Even though I, I'm, I'm conscious of that, I don't. it doesn't like drive me crazy where I'm like, oh, I'm going to stay till 9, 9 o'clock tonight and get all my Outlook. It's fine. It's, just let them accumulate when you get to it. Right. Well, you kind of know they're on the list, so... Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but if you can, but if you, but some people can be kind of compulsive about that part of it. Like, well, okay. Getting back to the text thing. Um, so, if um, if a person doesn't have these disciplines, 
maybe they just don't know about them. You know, uh, like like people, some people are bad at keeping appointments, not because they don't remember them, because they have, you know, an emotional thing. And I was talking earlier about my friend that worked in radio. He used to be notoriously late. And that, I think, for him, that was a response to him on his radio job having to be exactly on time, you know, a hundred times a day for running commercials and starting the news and doing everything right perfectly that in the rest of his life he didn't do that. He was the same way with cussing. He couldn't do it on, on air, so he just, when he was off air, he just cussed all the time. And so, is that... Well, okay, so are undisciplined people evil? I mean, our society wants you to think they are, and they certainly are, can be a pest because you can't count on them sometimes. But. Well, I think our society just puts such a high premium on putting it in quotes because I'm not, I don't buy into this completely, but on achieving and achievement and making something of yourself and all you know that all those kind of puritanical yeah. notions of of right. self of egotistical greatness right and probably more than any other society on earth where maybe there's some smaller society somewhere but well you know there's a lot of a lot of uh, mention of uh, you have to work hard to succeed and every time I see that I think yeah, but I've always lived by work smart, not hard. Well, and I think it depends on how you define succeeding. Well, that too, and, and what you consider hard, too. And I think what ends up happening is that at some point, a lot of people come to the realization that it's all a big fraud. Yeah. You're spending your life you know, kicking brick walls and your feet hurt. Well, yeah. I mean, what I was thinking of is, you know, a lot of times the people that say the thing about working hard have physical jobs. And so, you know, i got to get out there and build houses every day for eight or ten hours every day. And, you know, eventually I'm going to have a 401k that anybody can respect. But, uh, but the thing is... In a smaller company where you work side by side with the boss, he's working the same hours, he's doing the same physical labor, but he's getting ten times as much out of it. So that alone puts a lie to the whole work hard. You know, that guy is working hard and smart at the same time. Somebody that somebody that wins big in the lottery, like I'm hoping to in a few hours, um, they're not working hard or smart. Because wasting a dollar on the lottery is just stupid. Well, now we're talking about luck, which is a whole different... Yeah, luck's a different thing. But... Uh, At least, I would say it is. I suppose there's some people... Haha, but... Let me modify. The mutual formation of luck and not luck. <laughs> so you got to have unlucky to have lucky. You do. But of course, thank God for us unlucky. But is but is luck one of the ten thousand things? Probably, huh? Yeah, hundred thousand things. Okay, and so we come back here to the second set of uh, sentences. The ten thousand things arise, but he doesn't begin them. Talking about the sage. Right. So when he's. Um, got the 10,000 things arise, but he doesn't begin them. So, you know, on the sim simple, reading it very simply, it's like, well, you just let life unfold the way it unfolds. And that's usually the best. I've seen that happen a lot of times. Or, I remember, well, uh, well, like the big hair salon where I used to work, the guy that owned it just drove everybody crazy because... He was the most passive manager I'd ever seen in my life, but he'd been doing it so long, and he'd been working with hairdressers so long, <laughs> that he knew that they were excitable and everything a lot of times. And uh, 
So nine times out of ten, if something came up, you would do nothing. And nothing was the right thing to do. Because things kind of worked themselves out without, you know, him having to do anything. Um, with, but I wouldn't call him a sage. With a sage, is there a time for action? Or is that incompatible with... Being a sage. That, that makes you someone else, I guess. Well, it says dwelling on it. It doesn't say in it. You know, don't dwell on... He dwells in non-active affairs. In, dwell, that's where he lives. He, he I think that's dwelling like living, right? Yeah. But then practices the wordless teaching, which doesn't exclude taking action. That's true. There's some action implied in that. Yeah. Because you have to live. You have to cook food and okay. harvest food and, you know, make the lights, make the candles. Right. Um... But I guess what I meant more is uh, acting in the way of the hero, the modern-day hero, maybe, or the... Right. And there's, I mean, there's a different existence, I understand that. Or maybe the modern-day prophet sort of person, like a Muhammad, I yeah. mean, like a... Not Muhammad, like a Gandhi or Martin Luther King, who were right. definitely, I mean, like, they were both very much men of action, but in a sort of sagacious and way. <laughs> and it got both of them killed. <laughs> True. So you know, so I you know I think that kind of feeds back into the 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 duality thing of if you do take action, you have to be prepared for the reaction. Are there sages in our time that and have any I'm, relevance? I'm a big fan of the Dalai Lama. You know, of the religious, he's very active. He's very active. Very political, even. I mean, he's... He's political, but not... But in an even-handed way. He doesn't... Um, you know, he isn't like the Pope. He doesn't make edicts of, you have to do this, you have to do that. You know, every, every time he has an opportunity, though, he does go out there and say, hey, be kind to each other. Which is kind of a, you know, make-it-up-your-own-way kind of attitude. But it's still a prescript or a... Right. Well, it's, you know, along with everything he's studied. And, I mean, the one thing that puzzles me about him is he claims that for the past 75 years, he's meditated four hours a day. <laughs> and it's like, geez, you know, I can, I can get in a good 30 minutes yeah. <laughs> before my mind just, let me out of here. Well, that may be the discipline of the sage. Right. He's conditioned to it. But you then know. he's spending other parts of his time in acting on the things that he's thinking about. And to be honest, <laughs> he's, he's got people. All the details of his life, you know, pretty much meditating is his only job. And then, you know, traveling around and talking. And, you know, but still... It's, uh, yeah, that's kind of a mind-boggling idea of meditating yeah. four hours a day. Yeah. Who's that actor? What am I going to say? Seven years in Tibet? And it was supposedly a true story about this guy that went up and just hung out with him for seven years. Oh. And it was... Oh, Very cool. Someone, a handsome Hollywood actor played that. But it was a good movie. It's good. So then the sage, it's only because he doesn't dwell on them, his tasks, I guess, or he accomplishes his tasks but doesn't dwell on them, it's only because he doesn't dwell on them that they therefore do not leave them. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I, well, I think there again, that might be talking about passion, because passion is always fleeting. And Or is that humility? Well... I'm the most humble guy you ever met. Uh, I'm so humble you wouldn't believe it. Yeah. But uh, I'm humbler. Yeah. Like, I don't compare myself to other people as much as other people do. Yeah. <laughs> um, he accomplishes his task, doesn't dwell on it. Well, yeah. 
and that that can also speak to future chapters where it talks about well especially the one that I remember is talks about war and not to you know not to like get all hung up on victory because victory means you killed some people so let's get real you know actually this answers my other question too he acts on their behalf he acts on behalf of the 10,000 things but doesn't make them dependent so he does act in some manner he's acting yeah that's detachment yeah well, but there's still some action that goes along with the detachment, because that's, again, that sentence. He acts on their behalf but doesn't make them dependent has two, two halves to it, the yin and the yang. He's, yeah. he's doing something on their behalf without attaching himself to them. Yeah. So the acts on their behalf, I suppose I could be thinking, thinking about stuff. Right. But it seems like it... Because then he accomplishes his tasks as well but doesn't dwell on them. So it seems like there's some notion of activity or action on the part of the sage. Well, but on this, you know, I'm kind of reading into this that dwelling is something that happens afterwards. But maybe I'm not, you know... No, I, think, I think you're right, but he's still accomplishing tasks. Well, I'm, I'm thinking of, like, a ninja is like someone who practiced taking action in an extremely focused way. But once, but they also are detached and, and dispassionate at the same time. That way, emotion doesn't cloud them and distractions don't cloud them. So that would be kind of not dwelling at the same time. But on, but on the issue of whether sages are supposed to be taking actions, this seems to imply that yeah, they they have something to do other than and maybe it's just the wordless teaching, but. He's doing some kind of acts on behalf of the 10,000 things and accomplishing his tasks. So there's something more to that than just, I think, than just yeah. dwelling in non-active affairs and practicing wordless teaching. Or maybe, maybe that's the acts that he's doing on their behalf is the wordless teaching. I don't know. Yeah. It seems to be a little, you know, to me it seems like there's a, almost a conflict there, although I'm sure you can resolve those. I'm just kind of trying to figure out the life of the sage, I guess. Yeah. I get the medita- you know, the, the meditation, I get the wordless teaching, I think. But I'm wondering how much more there is to it than that with the sage. I mean, Lao Tzu, I would guess, considered himself a sage. He wrote, if he wrote this. Yeah, yeah. Or she wrote the 81 verses of this very like renowned text so that's an action right it's not a wordless teaching yeah yeah but I think yeah the wordless teaching is a different thing it's you know it's just doesn't dwell in non-active affairs. Therefore, the sage dwells in non-active affairs. Yeah, so he lives in the in the calm spaces in between, but then practices the wordless teaching of living, you know, a life of balance. Right, but the, part of the balance includes acting on behalf of the 10,000 things, whatever that means. Right. On behalf of, but not as part of. Well, sure. Yeah. Kind of makes you wonder exactly what he does do. Yeah, well, um, and that's, that's, I think, when you let those things arise. You, re- you know, you don't... Diogenes had his own answer. He well, like, masturbated naked in a barrel in the middle of Athens. Yeah. He's a sage of a different sort. I, uh, <laughs> I found this, I don't remember how I stumbled onto it, but it was, uh, somebody had asked, well, what do, oh, did, is it true that back in the 17th century or 18th century, did nannies uh, give hand jobs? And so it was on that Quora website, which is 
I'd like to participate there, but the answer are smarter than I am, you know. And so, but one of the answers was some guy that said that he was when he grew up in the 40s or 50s. He was a kid that uh, his grandmother had been born in like 1880, and either was a nanny or had a nanny or whatever. And so she took care of him, I guess, growing up. And so part of the deal was that um, they would, uh, well, not, not only the hand jobs, but, you know, whatever it took to relax these little male childs before they, so they would go to sleep and be quiet. And, you know. I can see being very noisy at night. And, yeah. And not being, you know, not just princes, but, you know, any sort of gentry that could afford a nanny. That was just standard practice, you know, because, of course, you know, and uh, we talked about this a long time ago, too, that the sexual interaction that's not in the romantic model that we have now wasn't rape back then. You know, it was just what was, you know, and it's like we were closer to farm animals then than we are now. And yes, so, farm animals masturbate each other all the time. And, uh, well, or they just blase about, you know, sex. It's like, oh, I smell something, let's yeah. go. Yeah. But, um, the, uh, what was it? Oh, that, um, not only did they relieve the, the pressure <laughs> that way, but they also gave, uh, they gave, uh, uh, oh, the common thought that was all children are constipated. So they gave them something for constipation before bedtime to clear out their bowels so they could sleep and cleaning out their testes so they could sleep was just part of that. Lovely. So, concepts of good and evil change. <laughs> well, that is a natural sedative though, having an orgasm. So. In a, in a, yeah, in a way it's, it's harmonious. It's tone and voice, you know. You know, and if, if you take away the, you know, the uh, puritanical element of, you know, and, and like, um, there's one idea that, I remember, I remember when I saw this, but it was the reason that Catholicism especially is so hard on sex you know, that they have very specific rules, you know, about it. Lots of don'ts. Is because, especially a guy, but everybody who has sexual desire, if you have control of it, you have control of them. And, you know, so that allowed them to control masses of people. Giving up control over the most intimate... Yeah, you know, or they're, yeah, and, it, and, it's, and it's part of your primal drive thing, right? And so if they have control over that, they kind of have control over you. But I was thinking of it in the, taking it the next step, is that it also works like the Stockholm Syndrome. They are, they have you subjugated over an extended period of time and so you get to like worship them <laughs> because it's like a weird psychological trick. Yeah. And uh, is that the Stockholm syndrome? Yeah, you know when when somebody gets to be a uh, I guess it started and somebody was be, was uh, uh, being held ransom or something like that in Stockholm and they got to empathizing with their captors. And so, so as you can tell, not a fan of religion or Catholicism specifically. But uh, too many answers and not enough questions. Yeah. And the Tao Te Ching has too many questions and not enough answers. And we have talked for over an hour, so do we have a summation? I think I just summed it up. Okay. Too many questions and not enough answers. No, I. I it's only chapter two, right? Well, obviously there's this whole notion of the yin and the yang and the kind of the scale and the different sides of the scale. Yeah. Still have some confusion about the life of the sage, but we'll, I'm sure, dig into that more as we go along. Right. 
That'd be my summation. Okay. Well, got anything to add? Well, you know, it laid out certain certain things in the first chapter, and here in the second chapter, they're laying out some groundwork for du duality of existence, or you know, the duality of things that happen to us and that we perceive. And then also lays out the thing that the sage, which is somebody that you would strive to be at least partially, is um, you know lives in the spaces in between uh, these dualities and participates, but doesn't let himself get swept up in them because everything is transitory. There, you know, all these things are constants, but then nothing is a constant, is what we learned in chapter one. So, uh, still, uh, feel like I need to dig a little deeper into the sage, but we'll do that hopefully. Yep, that will come in the weeks to come. Yep. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody.